This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So this panel is titled, They Have All the Power, uh, a quote from one of the, the young people we work with at High Park Academy. The subject is, is accountability, the consequences of lack of accountability and impunity. The, we had video for this purpose to sort of key up the... Uh, uh, the conversation have had, have had technical problems, so I'm going to make a few brief remarks and then go into the panel, which will really be a continuation of the last one because a number of the of the questions we'll be addressing were were put in play uh, very effectively. One um, sort of housekeeping note is once the conversation opens up and you ha- want to participate, have questions, have comments. Please come, if it's possible, to the, the mics in the back. People can line up there. I apologize. I mean, we're delighted that there's been so much audience participation. Um, and, uh, but I do apologize that we may not be able to get to everybody. We, we hope to, but it'll be more likely to happen if, if people come to the mics in the back. If for some reason that is difficult for you, there will also be people circulating with uh, handheld microphones. Uh, there also are index cards available to um, write comments, questions, things you want us to, to know and take away from this, from this ongoing conversation. Um, also, with respect to the videos, the one that was to introduce the, the last panel and, and this one, as well as the ones you saw yesterday, they will all be available on the Invisible Institute website, uh, invisibleinstitute.com. So I want to tell you a story um, that would have been in the video. Uh, There's a young man here. He's actually in the front row today uh, from Hyde Park High School, Mario Conway. And I did an interview with him last year, last year, very much in the vein of the interviews uh, those of you who were here yesterday saw, focused centrally on his everyday encounters with the police and asking him to describe uh, in as much detail as he could summon what those, what those were like. Um, uh, in the course of the conversation, and actually quite suddenly, Mario was overcome with emotion. And he told me of a friend of his named Cedric Chapman, who was shot and killed by the police some months earlier. And I I didn't get a chance to go back and and get the exact quote from the video, but he said something to the effect, the 10 o'clock news reported on it for just a minute, and then it was gone. His grief in that moment was powerful, immediate, um, you know, filled him. And I I thought about that uh, recently as we were preparing for the the conference. What Mario registered so intensely is a common occurrence in Chicago. Three to four times a month, a a resident of the city, a citizen, is shot by the police. A disproportionate number of 
those shot by the police are black. Um, a substantial number are, are young people. Typically, how those incidents are reported on the news is very much like Mario described. There's maybe a 24-hour 24 uh, 24-hour attention, if that. Um, typically, there is, uh, at least on television, footage from the site of the shooting, uh, a spokesperson, and it's almost always the same person, a gentleman named Pat Camden, who used to work for the department and now is employed by the police union. Uh, he has a very avuncular, reassuring manner, is at the site of the shooting, talks to the officers, and then briefs the press. And what he almost invariably, you know, on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of occasions, somebody should put together the, the Pat Camden anthology, mm-hmm. What he tells the press is, um, you know, self-defense on the part of the officer, threatening situation, appears to be a justified shooting. There is an agency in Chicago, um, Howard Saffold made reference to the Office of Professional Standards. It was some years ago rebranded as the Independent Police Review Authority, IPRA, that's charged with investigating police shootings as well as excessive force complaints. IPRA issues a statement that um, the shooting is under investigation and a report will be made. End of story. End of story. Again and again and again and again. Um, you know, three, four times a month, do the math, you know. Um, that is how police shootings of civilians are handled in Chicago. Recently, in, in recent months, uh, and some of you may have, have heard this story, a case has come to public attention of a 17-year-old boy, Mario is also 17, who was shot 16 times and killed by the Chicago police, Laquan McDonald. And I want to just briefly tell you this story and, and describe two potential alternative outcomes and just have you reflect on something that was kind of in play yesterday and, and I think is very central to this conference, which is how these horrific events that happen and then are not addressed enter into the understanding of the world and their place in it of young people like those you heard from you heard from yesterday. Laquan McDonald, uh, October 20th. Ferguson is all over the front page. Actually, that was a Monday that week. There were national demonstrations across the country um, with respect to, to police violence. The police um, get a call that it's about 9.30 at night, that a young man with a knife is attempting to break into to vehicles in a truck yard on the southwest side. Um, officers respond, and this is, a, this is a, an industrial area, a kind of, um, not quite right, right to describe it as a wasteland, but at night there's no traffic. There's no, I mean, there's traffic on a, on a main artery, Pulaski Road, 
but no pedestrian traffic, uh, no open businesses. They find a young man, he indeed does have a knife. He, he's, he's sort of wandering around. They, it's a, two officers in a car. They approach him, ask him to drop the knife. He doesn't. And they respond very appropriately. They don't force the situation. You know, he's not threatening anybody. They don't force the situation. They follow him in their car. One of, one of the officers in the car driving, you know, four or five miles an hour. Another officer takes a flashlight and walks alongside and, and, and follows him. The boy seems a little bit disoriented, he's, but he's not actively threatening. He, he walks actually several blocks with them following. Their assessment of the situation is that they, um, they need a taser and they don't have one. You know, they're trying to figure out how to how to manage the situation. Uh, they call for backup, they call for a taser, and uh, continue to, to, to follow the young man. He walks three, four blocks, ends up um, uh, near this major, on, you know, entering into this major um, street, Pulaski Road. Other police cars arrive at that point, and next to a, a huge vacant lot, a construction site with a construction fence, they sort of corner him, uh, contain him, corral him with the cars. Um, they have complete control of the situation. This is not, you know, he's not, he's not threatening. They have, they have force. They have, you know, control of the, the physical environment. There are no pedestrians, he's not wandering into a shopping center with his knife out. Um, officers get out of the car, so there's six officers there. Uh, the boy is shying away from them, and one of the officers takes out his gun, shoots him. There's a long pause, and the officer shoots him 15 more times while he's on the ground, disabled, Posing no threat. That's the backstory. That night on the news and the next morning in the newspapers um, is Pat Camden. Um, justified shooting, uh, clear cut case. The um, boy lunged at an officer with the knife. The officer shot him in the chest in self defense. He died sometime later at a nearby hospital. That was the narrative. That's the narrative we all accepted about what happened that night. And I actually remember reading, I remember Craig and I both, you know, reading that story. And here we are immersed in this work, right? Immersed in this work all the time. Reading that story and feeling a mild sense of unease like you do when you read those stories. And then passing on. You know, not investigating ourselves. The real hero in this narrative is somebody within the city who um, knew of the case and um, was deeply concerned that it would not be investigated and that it would be covered up effectively. And he contacted us, Craig, Craig and myself, and said, you guys have to, to look into this, and that there is, that there is video, there is in-car dash cam video of, of the incident and of what happened that the, the city has. 
Um, I want to just stress that nothing would have happened with respect to this case in the normal course of events if it wasn't for um, a whistleblower, you know, who we can't name and, and never will, within the city who had such profound skepticism about his own, you know, the, the institution he was part of addressing this horrendous incident and, and actively investigating it that he risked his career um, to, to make known to us that the two, different, two different outcomes and then we'll, we'll turn, to the, turn to the panel. Under conditions of, of impunity where this case is just handled, managed, the press is managed, we're all sort of pacified and um, the video somehow ends up in the bottom of a drawer um, what is the impact for Mario and all of his friends and, and others? What's the impact of that kind of impunity? That the, the message that um, a black teenager can be shot down, essentially executed on the streets of the city, and nothing happens and there are no consequences? Um, that's one, you know, one scenario. In a promising but yet unresolved way, another um, set of events have, have unfolded, and there's a possibility that there will be some semblance of justice in this case and some public acknowledgement of what happened. Um, you know, we and others have called on the city to release the video. I've been writing about the case as a journalist. Um, you know, for a while we were swimming upstream. Now it is. It has become a major case. If you, if you Google the name Laquan McDonald, if you're not aware, among the things you'll find are editorials in both Chicago papers, the Tribune and the Sun-Times, and um, the New York Times calling on the city to disclose, the, to make public the video and acknowledge, acknowledge what happened in the case. There's also a, a federal, federal and state investigation in progress, a federal grand jury impaneled. Um, so there's an outside possibility that the shooter will be, um, will be criminally charged. If that happens, just to underscore the extent of the scale of what we're talking about, if that happens, and it hasn't happened, but it might, it will be the first time in Chicago history that a police officer has been criminally charged for an on-duty shooting of a citizen. I mean, we've all been, all, those of us who, I'm looking at Howard, and, you know, those of us who've been in this for, for um, decades, I've called every civil rights lawyer, every, you know, apart from the usual research one does, um, you know, every journalist who, who specializes, every investigative reporter who works on this, none of us can come up with a single case. There are a handful of cases, one uh, was just, um, uh, you know, came to his conclusion last week. Handful of cases of off-duty shootings, domestics, road rage, those kinds of those, of, you know, those sorts of events. Not one instance that anybody can come up with of a Chicago police officer being charged for um, on-duty shooting of a citizen of the city. How does that enter that level of 
and I'm not for a moment suggesting that all of those shootings are, are unjustified, of course not. But we're talking now thousands and thousands over, over the decades. Um, how does that enter into the, the lives and the sense of their standing and who they are in the society of young people in the neighborhoods where this kind of violence occurs? So I, I want to let me introduce our panelists, and, um, and and then I hope we can really have a sustained discussion about the the nature of impunity and the real costs, and also the larger context in which it operates. Um, our, our panelists, starting at the far end, are uh, Kathy Cohn, who is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Craig Futterman, um, you know, uh, to say we're friends doesn't even describe. Uh, he, apart from being my friend, he's a clinical law professor. But um, you know, we've been in the the closest kind of collaboration for for years on this work. Dolores Jones Brown, who is a professor of law, political science, and criminal justice administration at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And Chris King, who's managing editor of the St. Louis American. And um, Chris, which I should note is, I think I have this right, the oldest um, African-American newspaper in the country. Um, And Chris was centrally, centrally involved in in covering, and really from the ground, the um, uh, events in Ferguson over the last, has it been 10 months, Uh, however long it's been. Chris and I also share, share a bond in the sense that, um, as some of you know, for, for years I published something called The View from the Ground from Public Housing. The View from the Ground from Public Housing on the South Side. And so we've, and, and Chris is, and I hope we'll hear about it, has had a view from the ground from Ferguson. And we're often described, uh, nobody knows how to describe journalists who do that sort of work. And Chris came up with a really nice formulation. You know, there's a term citizen journalism. And he, and I've, I've sort of adopted it, and I'm grateful for it. He came up with the formulation that what we practice is journalistic citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd like to begin by asking each, um, each of the panelists from their perspectives, and, and they have you know, somewhat different perspectives, what are the consequences, as you see it, the costs and harms of lack of accountability, of impunity? And I think perhaps because of you know, the centrality of, of um, his work to this conversation, I, I'll start with Craig. And the, but I'd like each, each of you to respond to that question. Thanks, Jen. Am I good? Am I on? Um, can't help but be deeply affected by the story that that Jamie just shared. Um, And so what I'm going to say is going to sound, feel trivial in relationship to it. Um, But I want to start with trust. Um, I want to start with, I was thinking about yesterday and the video that we first watched and there was a young man you might have seen, Hasante, he had dreads and one of the things that he said that just deeply touched me going back not just to the 
the kind of egregious incident that Jamie just described that um, is almost unimaginable um, and where there was a videotape of what sounds in every way, shape, and form to be an execution of someone, a young boy who then is lying on the ground and with then 15 additional bullets riddled through his body um, and the cover-up around it. But that's why going back to where I'm going will sound trivial. Um, but Hassante, um, back to the everyday encounters, said something like, um, when asked about positive encounters, he said something like, every encounter is upsetting. There's no such thing, ain't no such thing as, as good encounters with the police. And I was thinking about that also in the context of the last panel um, and some of the things that were mentioned by, for one, Professor McAdams and others. Um, and I remember her, Professor Conyers yesterday um, talking about you know, respect and the basic treating people with respect, everyone. Um, so these encounters that Hassante and, and other kids describe, now the encounters, I'm talking about the encounters of being stopped and then searched in their neighborhood, no matter how respectful, no matter how kind, um, no matter how much an officer tries to treat a person engaged in that encounter with dignity, there's an unmistakable message that's sent when um, you're stopped in search. And it's an intended message in, um, in that we suspect you of being a criminal. And the reason I say it's an intended message, and I, and I don't mean that in a, in, in, a, in a perverse way, but that you know, under the law, we can't stop and frisk you unless we have a reasonable belief to believe that you are armed and dangerous, that you're a criminal. And so even under the most respectful circumstances, that can't make you feel good. It can't make you feel good about yourself. It's, there's an unmistakable message, no matter how kind, no matter how respectful we are, um, that uh, we think you're a criminal. And in addition to Asante, there were kids who, who you've also heard from and, and, and we talked with who describe far more positive encounters, not stop and frisk, but um, encounters where um, folks say things like, uh, like Howard mentioned, like, you know, how's it going? Just, you know, having a, com having a conversation. Again, treating people with dignity. But, and the officer friendly who Mark, who, who Mark Cleggett talked about um, has, seems, has seemingly, at least by training, dis dis I shouldn't say by training, but institutionally as a program has disappeared. Um, there, ha there are, and, and I've met plenty from growing up to the present, um, great neighborhood beat cops, officer friendly, who do engage people and engage people every day. Um, and, but that yet when kids engage and see that officer smile at them, um, ask them how they're doing, how their day, how school is, at the very same time, and this goes to Jamie's point or Jamie's question, the very, very same time, and even in the same instance, kids tell me, I see the jump out boys at the same point, Officer Friendly is talking to me just across the street, <coughs> harassing my friends and other kids. And they see not just that in that moment, but they see the jump out boys come back again and again and again, see that nothing happens to them that they're protected despite this interaction with officer friendly. And the, it sends an unmistakable message. Um, it sends, and this is the accountability point, um, 
that the real police, the real police out here isn't the officer who's greeted me with a smile, even if there are more officers who greet me with a smile than the, the jump-out crews. But the real police are the jump-out crews because they are completely protected and backed, including Officer Friendly, who isn't reporting them. And so then that, in, in, so as much procedural justice we can do, and I think it's an incredibly important thing, treating people right, treating people fairly, unless a kid sees that when officers are abusive or when officers who repeatedly abuse their power are dealt with and see mechanisms of accountability really work, officer friendly just seems like a lie and there's never going to be trust. And so that's where I start with. Yeah. I think the first casualty of accountability is trust. Dolores, what would you add? Wow. It's a really tough question. I want to make one correction. I teach in the Department of Law Police Science oh. in Criminal Justice Administration. And it's really important for this discussion because I've taught sworn officers of the NYPD for over 12 years now. And I can say that they are very, very different. So I have to push back a little bit against the chief when she says that, you know, all police come to the department wanting to do good. Um, there are certainly uh, folks who join the department in modern times because it's a good government job with pen- benefits from which they can retire in 20 years with a full pension. And I think some of those folks bring an attitude to the job that is not conducive to being public servants. They are about serving themselves, um, furthering their own lives. And if that means that some folks die in the course of them making it to retirement, they are okay with that. And I know that's a terribly controversial thing to say, but I'm saying that having spent a dozen years with different police officers. I think what is particularly problematic in this time um, where we have crime down in urban cities uh, is this notion that social scientists like myself and others in this room have engaged in research. We've gotten obsessed with data, but we've taken that data and we have perversely incentivized police officers to criminalize young people of color and to criminalize certain places. So if you are a criminalized face in a criminalized place, that means you're more likely than anyone else anywhere else to befall, uh, become victim of um, an unintended death, even if it's unintended, you're um, more likely to become a victim of an intentional death. Uh, Unfortunately, we know that there are police officers who have bad tempers, just like civilians who have bad tempers. And some of these deaths that we see are not mistakes. They are the product of a judgment that an officer has made that it is more important for him or her. It's usually him. The uh, social science data suggested women are less likely to uh, kill civilians in any kind of a situation. We have all this interesting terminology, the uh, continuum of force, where we have police officers who begin in a forceful stance with criminalized faces when they encounter them in criminalized places, And that's when we see these things that people want to call tragedies or mistakes. I don't necessarily support that view. What that then means for young people is that they feel powerless. Urban youth of color feel powerless in criminalized places because they're told that they fit the description, which means that they have the criminalized face. And I just want to share a story. We have... 
community organizations in New York City that are working with young people in efforts of police reform. One of them is called Brotherhood Sister Soul. There is a young man, Julian Terrell, who runs workshops, and they're called Youth Empowerment Workshops. And he says he spends 45 minutes in, in the middle of each week talking to these young people, empowering them, saying they have a control over their environment. And then they leave, and within 20 minutes, they are stopped by the police. And all that time he spent telling those young people and helping them to be empowered goes out the window. And so the question is, when you feel powerless, having a criminalized face, and living in a criminalized place, what do you do? Well, we all fear crime, and when I am fearful of crime, I call the police. But youth with criminalized faces and criminalized places don't do that, because as the one young man in the video said, you don't know which police officer is going to show up. And so you do what people you say in the street, you handle your business. Because your business still has to be handled. If you don't protect yourself, then you will fall victim to homicide at the hands of one of your peers. And what's most tragic is criminalized faces and criminalized places stand the risk on both sides. They fall victim to policing violence and they fall victim to violence by their peers. And I think that that is an unacceptable position to put young people in. And I'll stop there. Um, Chris, the, the view from Ferguson. In, in Ferguson, this is really uh, a great case study because there were two Department of Justice reports, and if you've not read them both, I encourage you to do so uh, right away. There was one that uh, incriminated the Ferguson Police Department as a terrible police agency that makes every mistake, including uh, no policy uh, to speak of for uh, investigating uh, uses of force. Uh, in this, people investigating their own use of force. So you shoot someone and, or you beat somebody up and then you investigate yourself and of course you exonerate yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And then there was another report that said, uh, look bad, uh, you know, six bullet shots, including two in the head to an unarmed 18-year-old, looks bad, but completely justified according to the most credible evidence matched against the forensics. So on the one hand, you have systematic racism and lawlessness, and on the other hand, you have a cop that uh, walked free. Now, Darren Wilson will never be a police officer again. We can be grateful for that. but. Uh, it didn't send a message to the individual uh, uniformed uh, law enforcement individuals that they're ever going to be held accountable in a similar case. So uh, given the benefit of the doubt, empty your gun and put the kid on the ground, neutralize the threat to yourself personally. Everyone I know that read the two reports and everyone in Ferguson, everyone in the St. Louis area saw it as a case that police officers protect themselves first and uh, they protect their fellow officers second and the community is third. That just doesn't seem like the right way to, to run a police agency. And how do you get to reform from here to, 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 to rebuild any kind of accountability and trust uh, in that police agency? I think is hopeless. I don't think Ferguson has any option but to disband its police uh, agency and contract with, with someone else. But for the other, uh, it just seems like a national problem as well. Ferguson, as we see now, every day there's another incident. Uh, Freddie Gray in Baltimore being the one that's uh, keeping me awake at night now. 
Uh, there obviously it's a national problem and we need our Congress, I think, ultimately to act to force these police agencies to do uh, some things. And there's a terribly unregulated environment for police agencies, which m many of us have learned covering these things in the last eight months uh, and change eight. since Ferguson. Uh, in, in the state of Missouri, uh, you, you, you license a, uh, you have to be licensed to be a police officer, but you don't have to be licensed, believe it or not, to be a police agency. Uh, we just had a municipal election in April uh, in Missouri where, um, you don't have to be accredited rather, uh, we, we had a, a, a municipal election in, in St. Louis which has nine, St. Louis County has 90 municipalities and 60 police agencies. 26 of these police agencies don't even have an intake psychological evaluation for the officers. So for 26 of the municipalities in the county where I live, the person pulling me over with a gun on his hip didn't have a psychological evaluation of any kind. So in that kind of environment, uh, we had, uh, excuse me, on the municipal election, we had people who were elected as mayor with around 100 votes who have their own police department. <laughs> and there's a lawsuit filed by the ACLU Missouri against a man named Sylvester Caldwell, who was the most recent mayor of Pine Lawn, a little municipality of just a couple hundred people. And he was the de facto police chief, and he also published his little newspaper. So here we had a guy who was a mayor, a police chief, and a publisher, and he was using all of these tools to, to defame his political opponents. And these are people who have to get maybe 100 votes to, to be elected mayor. Uh, and, and the state of Missouri doesn't have any mechanism for making this stop. So if you're an individual uh, in the community, I mean, I'm a middle-aged middle white man. Uh, I, I feel pretty safe around the cops. You know, I have every reason to. They always treat me respectfully since I cut my hair and fixed my missing front tooth. But, um, <laughs> but for a young African-American, I, I, I literally don't have anything to say to, to console or empower or encourage the young black people that I work with and work around and, and, and mentor. Uh, when they say, what do I do around the cops? I mean, I try to give them some advice, but I feel powerless to give them any hope or, or judgment. And I think we need national congressional action to set some real standards for police agencies, and then we need to hold police agencies accountable uh, for prosecuting their police officers uh, when they uh, commit uh, unreasonable acts of force against civilians. Kathy, yes. what do you think from your perspective? Uh, the question is from which perspective? From, <laughs> there's that's the there's, question. Just, there's yeah, so much right. going on here, and I, I'll, I'll try to be brief. But maybe okay, but then we'll get into points. it. Then we can get into You'll it. You'll stop yeah. me when yeah. I, okay, no. Um, I mean, the first, I want to go back to what Craig said about this question of trust. It is, um, I mean, at some level, right, emotionally, it's heartbreaking uh, to hear these young people, and I work with them all the time, talk about not mattering, right? We have to have a movement to say that black lives matter. So the unaccountability is very much about kind of the dehumanization, which we talked about yesterday, of young black people in particular, right? And it sends a message that, in fact, your outcome for many of you is that you will be killed, you'll be jailed, or you'll be discarded at some level, economically, socially. My, oh, it's on. Oh, maybe the other side would do it, yeah. I try to always do things on my left, but you're going to make me do it on my right? Yeah. Opposite my politics. Uh, <laughs> higher and higher. Okay, you know what? Uh, I thought it was can enough we, to put you on the left can we of the hear? stage. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, yeah you're good. Okay. So, so I, I think that the, it leads to kind of the unaccountability, it leads to kind of collective trauma in black communities. 
it leads to uh, a feeling that young people are now engaged in, I think Margaret Bill Spencer talked about this, the work of safety, right? They have mm -hmm. to figure out strategies mm -hmm. of where I go, how I can relate, you know, who I can talk to. So I think there's that, and I think that's what Craig was talking about. As a political scientist, the research, I dare say, the research also shows us that it socializes them politically, right? Yeah. That they learn that their political strategy becomes, I've read about it as a kind of politics of invisibility. If I'm not visible to the state, it can't harm me. Now the problem is that in a supposed democracy, the way in which you get your rights is that in fact you have to make claim to them. And the way you make claim to them is in fact to be visible. So if in fact if I'm invisible, I'm already a kind of secondary citizen if I'm a citizen at all. So that's fine. Um, I think it also says something about, as the mother of a black child, right, it says something about black parents and black communities being able to keep our children safe, right? So it says something about their, right, the dehumanization of young black people, but it also says something about the power of black communities and the absence of a pow the power, I want to keep inserting the word mm -hmm. power in our discussions, right, to keep our kids safe and to have, an, I would say, a kind of political infrastructure that can mobilize to control kind of governments mm -hmm. who would in fact put our kids in danger. And I think this is the third point I, I want to make very quickly, which is while I'm, I'm all for, and I know we're going to discuss kind of the question of accountability at the individual level, we're worried about kind of the bad police officers. Um, I, I, I worry about kind of where the unit of analysis of the level of analysis is, right? So the truth is, in particular for white police officers, white people are the most segregated group in the United States, hyper-segregation. White people go to school with white people, they marry white people, they go to church with white people, they like white people, right? Um, so, so the sense of, and then you send a white cop into a black neighborhood where the only way that they've learned about black people is not through direct interaction, but in fact largely through popular culture and news reports that in fact do criminalize us, right? Um, so I'm not, I, I'm worried about trying to find the quote unquote bad apple, but I'm worried about a socialization process that instills racism and fear. So when white cops say I was afraid of him, when Darren Wilson says, you know, Mike Brown looked like Hulk Hogan to me, when in fact they're not that different in size, right? That's, it could be about Darren Wilson being a bad apple, but it could be the socialization of whiteness in this country and racism in this country. And so if, if if we're not dealing with that, if we're not dealing with that, then I think you know we can we can put in place the uh, analysis of trying to find the bad apple. But you know, implicit bias research suggests that white cops see a wallet, and if it's held by a black person, they see a gun. Right. The last thing I'll say really quickly mm -hmm. is I also think that, and the brother yesterday, brother gentleman, uh, talked about um, the economics of this. And I, you know, I'll be really quick on this, but I think if we don't understand the ways in which neoliberalism and the disinvestment of federal dollars in particular from cities has led to a kind of different strategy of revenue generation that includes and impacts policing, so that if I, if I, as a city, if I need money, and we saw this in Ferguson, one of the things I can do is stop lots of black people and yeah. give them fines, right? Absolutely. Another thing I can do is protect the tourism trade of downtown which means I'm not now necessarily just thinking about policing black communities, I'm thinking about containing black communities, right? Because I don't want them interacting on Michigan Mile, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
or whatever it's called. Yeah, Magnificent. Miss Magnificent, Magnificent Mile. Mile. <laughs> it's on Michigan Street, right? So I, I think it's I think when we think about accountability, we also have to think about kind of the nature of our cities, the dictates around finances that impacts policing, the ways we've disinvested from black communities, right? And I know that's a lot for a panel and a conference, right. but that has to be part of how we think about accountability. No, it's, it's great stuff. to make those, those larger frames around the discussion visible. And I think you're also bringing us back to the two questions that Howard noted that were put in play yesterday but weren't, weren't addressed, the larger economic analysis. Right. And also the question that I believe you asked about whose interests are served. Well, absolutely. You know, whose interests are served? Any responses to... To Kathy's riff? Bravo. Oh, that's a good one. I think to sort of follow up a little bit more on what I was saying about how social scientists have contributed to the kinds of policing and also sort of a legitimization of the kinds of policing that kind of divided the previous panel. Um, so, right after the civil rights movements of riots that were part of the civil rights movement, as a nation, we kind of understood that it was unacceptable for the police to engage repeatedly with innocent people who were black and brown. With the development of Broken Windows thesis and this notion of proactive and predictive policing, we now think, and the we is sort of the folks in the law enforcement community, not all and mostly not those of color, think that it's good policing, the kinds of things that the young people were complaining about in the video. I taught a sergeant once who said to me, he says, I don't know the law, I just do my job. I went to the board and I wrote law enforcement on the board and I underlined law several times. And I said, if we've got a supervisor who is arrogant enough to say in class that he doesn't know the law, he just does his job, we are in a really bad place. So in the earlier panel, we, someone talked about the whole notion of quantifying, I think it was Mark this whole notion that if we can quantify things, then that's what counts. And so what we see is, uh, again, a legitimizing of interaction with people even when they don't need or deserve or warrant being interacted with. I was struck by the uh, example of the young woman, I think it was walking across the street and then having her ID out to present to the police officer because the normalization of police contact for urban youth of color is something that is very disturbing. And for those who are not disturbed by it, it means that they have a mindset that has been the mindset about people of color, particularly those of African ancestry, since when? Slavery. Now, I had someone say to me, when you mention slavery, then it's easy to dismiss you because, and I don't even know what came out of the because. <laughs> I, 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 went, I, I was struck by it because up until the mention of slavery, this person had done, a, I thought, a very thoughtful analysis and critique of some very so-called right-wing discussion that had taken place on the panel. I had the occasion to go back to her and another time and say, you need to think about why it is that you said that and why, if it's true, why it is so. And so the way the policing is being done for urban youth of color, again, those racialized faces and racialized places, is consistent with the mindsets of a lot of people in the general public and in the policing public. And that is part of the problem. But what Broken Windows thesis says is that it's okay to behave like that 
because it keeps cities safe, most of the people who are being kept safe are white. And thank you, um, Ellen, for putting it out there, right? And, and there's a way in which whites will not acknowledge that. They say, oh, no, we're all being kept safe. Or my absolute least favorite is, but the black community is asking for this kinds of policing also. And so th- that means that there are older black people who are willing to throw the rights of young people under the bus under the illusion of being kept safe because there is crime in white communities and that crime is not being controlled by criminalizing all of the white youth in those communities. And I want to say this, there was a Latino police chief in Connecticut who used to use as part of his recruitment um, classes interviews of young people. The young people would interview the recruits. You know he didn't keep his job, right? And so what that says, if you have an innovative technique that can get at the core of problems in policing, and then that person can't retain their job, then those who want to keep their job will continue to do the things that have been done and seen as quote-unquote effective by a segment or segments of the community for years on end. And we lose youth officers, for those who mentioned that in the earlier panel, because we don't care enough about the people we police the most. And I said this to the president's task force, that all of the experts on policing, or the majority of them, are white males, but the people who we police are people of color. That disconnect has to be addressed. Great. Yeah. Um, I guess I have two amen, two amens, and and then one, and then want to just respond first broadly, and then take it, take it, take it down, um, because to me it starts with um, so these big concepts that you just that you both just talked about, um, and denial, a denial of reality, and um, the denial of the reality of Dolores, what you were just talking about, that and, and that we're this, we're still denying that. Black kids are treated differently than white kids by law enforcement. And it's not just by law enforcement. I could take it out and, and out and out. Um, but denying that reality, denying that fundamental reality, denying the same kind of reality um, evoked by Jamie's story um, when, and this now not at an individual incident by incident level, but a systemic denial, whenever an incident occurs like what occurred to, not incident, there a murder occurred of Laquan McDonald and we're not going to call it a murder. Um, And that immediately when something like that happens, the institutional machinery of denial just immediately kicks in. Um, And related to the big things that that you both talked about. And I I don't want to just harp on trust because the harm is much greater than trust. But part of the thing about the, the, the trust issue, until we start, though, with some just basic honesty about these realities, basic honesty and now systemic honesty, you know, so if instead of the reflexive reaction from law enforcement is denial when something bad happens, that hasn't worked well. I mean, how's it worked for folks? Um, how many years, I mean, so is there trust now? by black communities at large versus and, and police? Has there been trust for years and years? 
but we've had denial consistently. And so that hasn't worked. How about changing a little bit and let's start with a little bit of honesty. And honesty about the realities that you both um, really eloquently said. So just one, one vignette because that also raises an issue, uh, a systemic issue, about code of silence um, when we're talking of, when we're also talking about, about police. Um, Jamie was here with me too. One of the, so my, my students and I, and with Jamie, we worked for many years in public housing in Chicago. And there's an incident that, that, so just a few years, that occurred a few years back, but um, the response is really emblematic and it's the same response that Jamie talked about when he told the story of Laquan today, when he told the story of, so immediately what happened, and this is now um, reality of four shootings a month, that can, and an average that can go back years and years and years and years, about 50 shootings a year, more than, the one thing that's remained constant in those shootings, that over 75% of the people who've been shot by police in Chicago are black. That's been constant. And the other thing that's been constant, as Jamie said, is that it's always justified, rule justified at the end of the day. He had a knife, there's always a reason. He had a knife. Um, why, did he, why did he just not, why did he get out of the car? Why didn't, why, or why didn't he get out of the car? Um, it, it's, but, so this story, one, one quick vignette that I, want, that, that I want to share that I think though just shows the effects of denial and not really acknowledging some of these realities. We're surrounded by little kids. Um, outside of public housing complex, summer day, older man riding his bicycle through. We just had greeted, and there are kids who saw, again, um, these neighborhood police, neighborhood police officers, good police officers out there, affectionately known as scarecrows, keep the drug dealers away, and known as scarecrows because then when they go, you know what happens, they come back. Mm-hmm. And so then, so, so then, um, then these two, two officers from a unit like that Howard was talking about, one of these specialized units, um, come barreling through over the lawn, and smack this old man with a bicycle, mm-hmm. pinning him between a fence. The driver then gets out, and I'm gonna name the driver because I think it's sometimes important to name folks. I think it is important, this goes to honesty too. A guy by the name of Officer Panicki, he gets out and he smacks the guy a couple times in the face in front of all these kids, in front of all these people, including a couple of my law students who were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was there immediately after, seeing the, seeing, seeing the, seeing the aftermath of this stuff. In front of all these people, in front of officers themselves, and then they falsely charge him with possessing drugs, this old man, because something had to happen justified. There's, he's hauled off, and what happens? Um, we learn then, you know, so there's all these statements, and actually Professor Conyers and I represented the old man in court. The judge found that his rights were violated, um, and yet at the end of the day still nothing happened to the officers. Unjustified, again, no finding. And what do we learn about Officer Panicki was that within the last few years, he had 55 similar complaints. 55 complaints, his partner had 30. And so this happened now about maybe eight years ago. And this is just, this goes to the point of both two things, code of silence and, and, and impunity. One, what message to all the kids who are out there who saw with their own eyes what just happened when the machine of denial kicked in and said, that old man's life doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter. Nobody has power to say or do anything. It doesn't matter that it occurred within, in front of nearly 100 witnesses, 100 witnesses, even including some law students. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter even that a judge, and a white judge at that, found that he violated the rights. Doesn't matter. 
So how, is that how do we want our kids to see the police? Um, and that denial not working. Can, so can, this one, one, one yeah. thing, and I get off. I know I've gone. No, no, no. Long. I just wanted to add a note. But too. so so now today, fast, 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 fast forward. Two things. Code one, two points. Code of silence. One was the two officers who were out there. Um, who immediately called 911, get the man an ambulance. I talked with them afterwards, and they were as appalled as I was about what just happened. And indeed, two of those officers got into a shoving match with the white officers who had done this. And like, we work here every day. What are you doing? You know, you're making our jobs a, li- a, li- a living hell. And that's the point. I mean, how also can those officers effectively be and police and work in any kind of partnership when this is going on with impunity? But when I talk with those two officers, would they come forward? Would they testify? Would they say what happened? The answer was no. no. So can I add two, two notes to that? I mean, the question is, well, three small details. One is those 100 people, nobody was interviewed. OPS, the Office of Professional Standards at that time, was a block away from where this incident occurred on South State Street at Stateway Gardens. Um, there were witnesses. We were taking witness statements. There, um, when... OPS issued its report, not sustained, they hadn't talked to anybody. So again, to Kathy's point, what's that say to the community about their... Second, what's it say to the police that Panicki, all these years later, is still at the top of the list of officers with the most excessive force complaints and has been promoted? Yeah, so that's that's the last one. So this occurred, this occurred, this occurred eight years, this occurred about eight years ago. So we just received information about, just within the last four years, who's received the most brutality complaints. You know who was number one on the list just within the last four years? Panicky. Panicky. So how dysfunctional does the system have to be, or how deliberately blind and in denial? That's that's, that's the denial point about, and about the point about the small percent who've repeatedly abused their powers. Um, So one other just thing about getting over denial is if it's true, and I think most police chiefs around the nation would agree that it's true that it's a small percent of their officers who are responsible for the lion's share of the problems, why don't we look at that and why don't we get rid of it? There's absolutely no reason why Pinicki, who's at the top of the list, I can punch a couple keystrokes and mm-hmm. see this, and he's not at the top of the list now eight, ten years later. He was the top of the list then. Um, and... But so, Craig, I want to challenge you a little bit because, I mean, you and I are always in the weeds on it. We're in the weeds on this stuff. We're in the weeds on this stuff and looking at how dysfunctional the system is and saying, why don't they do pattern analysis? Why don't they just, you know, look, an officer's got a bunch of complaints. A group of guys riding together have an extraordinary number of complaints. This particular district or particular specialized, you know, there are all these different things that just jump out from the data. You have to make a major effort not to connect the dots. It's so obvious. It's so patterned. Again, the question, you and I always focused on the kind of molecular structure of denial. In what interest? What's it served? Why? Right. So, I, mean, I, I guess I would go to that point. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, there's a fundamental question we have to engage about policing in general. We, you know, you use the, I think is a very nice term, denial, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I think of kind of like, the, not like well, a lie, I think of the reproduction of power, I think of the systemic nature of the police, I think of all those things. But I also think that it's probably driven, as we heard earlier, about the fact that you get federal money, not because you engage in good community policing, because you, have, you can report so many arrests, right? Mm-hmm. And I bet Panicki or whatever his name, uh, sends stats. a lot, exactly, he has success under that, banner, right, under that framework. 
it, it seems to me that it raises the question of kind of why do we, and I know we have to, but you know, there is a point where we, we continue to kind of struggle about reforming policing, mm-hmm. when I think maybe in the next panel, somebody's gonna have to discuss this. Like, what are the other options available to us? So when we say, for example, black communities want more policing, no, black communities want safety. Right. And, the, and the dialogue that we have is that the only way we think about safety is through policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have we have other options now that are rooted in communities. That's not to say as the chief, and I'm not in any way uh, belittling the chief. You know, they're robbers and murderers, but most of what policing is is not that. And I think she just said that. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that there are other things rooted in communities where folks in communities can help us think about restorative justice um, or other avenues that that make more sense than trying to reform a corrupt institution, right, that is motivated largely through the control and containment of young black people. I mean, I, I, I could just be, you know, the extreme here. Well, let's see, but, let's see yeah. from the audience if you are. And, could, let's find I, out. Oh, you I want just, to jump in first? I, I want to just anybody address, who has questions or comments, please I, I come I to the mics. So I want to address the point that Ellen made because in New York City, there are these magnificent community-based um, anti-violence, anti-gun, anti-crime um, organizations that have actually been very successful. Mm-hmm. So in Brownsville, even when the police couldn't keep shootings down, Man Up Incorporated kept shootings down for over a year. And um, folks who would, would have been the shooters are willing to say the reason why they weren't shooting was because of this community-based organization. And so much of the credit for the crime decline in New York City has gone to the police department, and almost none has gone to these community-based organizations. But recent research at John Jay revealed that in communities that had these programs in place, homicides were down 18% and up 69% in the communities where they were not. Okay? And policing was the same across in the, these organizations um, across the city. So we know that it's not just the police, but in terms of media coverage, what get, who gets attributed um, with successful right. crime reduction right. That's right. are police organizations. And so one of the things that we have to do then is to make sure that if you are aware of a community-based anti-crime, anti-gun violence or anti-violence organization, that you uplift that organization, that you support that organization, that when you talk about federal monies, that we try to get more federal monies for those kinds of organizations because the folks in those organizations will take the time to make the distinction between the few serious violence offenders in the community and those majority of people, particularly majority of youth, who are not. They know the difference between the honor student and the gang member or knows the gang member who is the honor student and knows that this is not someone to be afraid of. I just wanna say that I'm getting a sense of feeling powerless listening to this information about data that identifies a police officer as a problem. Because there is this duality, there's a systemic problem and there are individual problems. But what I think I heard you say is there is data that will demonstrate that a, an individual officer is a problem and still nothing is done. That is, the, I mean, that's really the essence of our work, and we've been able to, through litigation and freedom of information, get um, really substantial uh, documentary uh, documents from the city bearing on citizen allegations of, of police abuse. And so what we can do, Paniki's just one of many examples, we can profile officers 
who have gotten extraordinarily high numbers of complaints, often for a specific kind of, you know, they, they, their pattern. So it's mm-hmm. false arrest, illegal search, often excessive force, again and again, same scenario. These are all found not sustained. But there's this extraordinary body of, body of information. When it becomes most telling is when um, the investigative agency, having ignored the information for decades, the officers indicted for crimes that completely track the complaints over all the years. The most recent um, explosive scandal that dramatized this was the specialized unit, special operations section, that were just really running a racket from within the department. And around the time that they were being indicted, we were accessing some of these lists. Who was on the top of the list? I think it was, Craig may have a better memory, at least five of the top ten or six of the top ten were the indicted members of SOS. So it's a deliberate institutional blindness. It's, we've, we've called it a regime of not knowing. Um, Kathy has stronger words. Yeah, I don't believe in the not knowing. So, What's that? I don't believe it's yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. not knowing. Yeah. It's, it's not having a sense that, in fact, one has to respond. Right. right? Which, which actually, That's in many ways, points to the kind of the other component of this question of accountability, which is an infrastructure of mobilization and politics mm-hmm. in, in communities of color or throughout the state. When I think about kind of the young people who are doing work, whether it's, of course, BYP 100, We Charge Genocide, right. Project NIA, right. FLY, right? Are we supporting organizations and young people who, are, in fact, are willing to talk about this in a much more kind of uh, urgent way, yeah. who aren't tied only by the data, who don't right. believe, in right. fact, the, the truthfulness of systems, in mm-hmm. fact, and who will kind of push the issue in a different way. So I think when we're talking about accountability, we have to talk about kind of who's going to do that work, right, beyond the kind of community advisory board, beyond the request for body cameras, because we know, look, people still get killed with body cameras, right? right? Um, so how do we think about kind of, uh, I, we keep talking about kind of a civic or political infrastructure that can hold these systems accountable um, so that they don't, aren't allowed to kind of just not know well, or, and or I, not I think, or you know, I, I think just one observation, and then we go to the audience. I think that one thing that has been overwhelmingly demonstrated, certainly the premise of our work, is that the police will not police themselves, the larger structures will not police themselves. So accountability resides with the civil society. Absolutely. It resides with civil society. So, you know, but there is a, a posture where you're asking them to police themselves better. Not going to happen. But what I'm most disturbed about is that we yep. have the information, we know that they're not policing themselves, we're still talking about accountability and transparency, but we have the data, so what are we going to do differently to, that's a great to, that's to respond? And that's part of what's new. What's, so we I mean, just have the data, yeah. I should say. No, that, we haven't that's before. one of the things that's, that's been pushing. So, I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, this relates to stuff that Kathy says, too. So, I mean, it, it's knowledge, it's caring, which you say, are we mm-hmm. really going to care? In whose interest to the serve? And then are we going to act and who's going to act? But one of the things, so why I started at least with honesty denial is that up until just what feels like five minutes ago, and this is still true, let's ask the question, um, how many black people have been shot by police around the nation? Does anyone we don't know. know? Is that, is that yeah. information even, even kept? And is it willfully not, not, not kept? But what we fought for some years, at least here now in Illinois and Chicago, to make available to everybody on the knowledge is power, um, police information about police misconduct, um, 
is stuff that there is a deep, deep public interest in, and that information belongs to the people. So we established that as a principle. It was just established months ago. So the short answer is that information in terms of getting to people at the ground, getting to community-based organizations, it, it has been hidden for... Again and again. Yeah. Let's take one, one last yeah. example, just the story that I, I'm sorry, you guys. This yeah. is such an interesting conversation. We're going to come back, I promise. The story that Jamie told about, about, about Laquan McDonald. So this is, this, is, this, is a perfect, this is a perfect example. It's like, so there is a videotape that will, it, I mean, that shows an execution. There is, I mean, South Carolina won't even come close to what, Right. You'll, what, what you'll see with the, I mean, and I don't want to. I don't want to give the grisly details again. So we have this. Not we. So the community doesn't have this. It has this information. So the department has had this information. Has had this video. Has kept it under. Has kept it under wraps. Is that serving even the department? Now I want to talk about. Is that serving the department? Nope. So when this video then comes out, and it will eventually come out. And not only will it be horrific and shock everyone and, and show deeply, I mean, how do we care about the lives of young people like Mr. McDonald, but in addition, we'll also know it's like, hey, we've had this information all along and made a conscious decision to keep it from you. And if that's, if, if, if starting with that premise, and is there ever going to be trust? Is there ever going to be a cooperative relationship? Am I ever, or is this young man here, is Mari going to feel comfortable saying, I'm going to go to the police when something goes wrong, if, you're not, if, if not even being honest about this basic reality? And sometimes we got, bad things are going to happen. So I don't need, I mean, the Laquan McDonald is extreme, but even in the best regimes, the best police departments, the truth is, some bad things are going to happen. And there are going to be folks who fall through, who slip through the cracks. But... It's how we deal with those things and as a system, and even how police departments deal with those things. And one thing that I guess I, I do take issue, a little issue with is I do think it's important, so I think it's critically important that communities public are involved in overseeing the accountability. At the same point, though, I don't think that means washing the hands of police departments for a police chief to run her agency just like you know, any corporation. Got to be in charge of discipline. And I know I may be the minority in this panel there, but I think... I think that the police departments do need to be ultimately in charge of their, of their shops, but with a window in and with real power from community who's, over, who's, who's overseen. Okay, question, what? Just real quick, just real quick. My apologies. I'm sorry, it'll take two seconds. One, we're talking about systematized right. data, right? Social scientific data. But we heard on the videos yesterday, yeah. young people know this. They know it, they know right? it, yeah. Right? The we assumption isn't, oh my God, they kept it from us. The assumption is, hell yeah, they're going to keep it from right. us, right? I mean, right. so there is this, <laughs> this thing like, this data is going to kind of change people's minds. I'm not clear who the audience we're talking about whose minds is going to change. And I don't don't want to suggest that the data that young people have in particular, when I'm thinking about the ways in which they share the killings of young black people, the encounters (laughs) through social media, they have their own data that I I, I wonder sometimes if we respect. So that's one thing. The Uh second thing is you've just laid out this incredible case against the police. And then the end you say, but I think they should police themselves or discipline themselves. And so I don't understand how what preceded that leads to, I still think that they should discipline themselves, yeah. even with the help of the, of the right. community. 
I guess so one, here's a few things. Okay. So with their and I love Craig, so yeah. we're good here. We're no, good here. no, okay. no, no, just, this, this, no. This, this is respect. So I agree, and I'll start with the premise that police departments have shown that on their own, and if left their own devices, the age-old question: Who should police the police? Right. Um, that it's not that hasn't worked. Yeah. What also hasn't worked, at least, and and, there, and and I'd like to say just because it hasn't been tried in the ways that it should, but. There are lots of now examples around the country with agencies that are staffed by civilians, and it's like, and it's all politically, who gets appointed, who's going to be on it, who's going to investigate. I start with, yeah, and just like there's no way, let's talk about criminal prosecutions. Jamie just, Jamie just shared data, I mean, and this is what's well, data, but that should blow our minds that thousands of black folks have been shot. Through, I'm 50 years old, and in my entire lifetime, I've never seen... Um, a Chicago police officer prosecuted for an on-duty shooting. Do the math again and again and again. So that tells you also that the local prosecutor, the local prosecuting agency, isn't going to do it itself because you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you. If the local prosecutor relies on the police department for 85, 90% of its criminal prosecutions, Ferguson, you know, are you, is Ferguson going to police itself? At the same point, though, I know, so if I'm, if, if so this, this now starts the assumption that I'm the, poly, I'm, maybe I'm the Pollyanna between us, the, <laughs> the minority, I think that we need, I, and, and there are many in the room I know who disagree with me, I think we need police. Um, I do think, yeah, I know, I know, I do think we, I do, th- I do, I do think, I do think we need police. I do think, I have daughters, I have teenage daughters, I have teenage daughters, and I want to know, too, that, and, and I love also the, the mechanisms that, um, folks like Dolores are talking about that makes all the difference mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. But I do also think that maybe I'm Pollyanna, but I want my daughters to be able to, to live in a society where my daughters ought to be able to call the police if something terrible yeah, happened right. and they will respond. And I also know because, and, and, and this isn't just Pollyanna, again, I've seen officers who I have this deep respect, and it's not just a few, it's a lot. Hey, when, if I'm calling 911 running out of the room, yeah. Someone's running into danger, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's not my butt. Mm-hmm. And I respect that. And, and I'm can, sorry. And I can I defend that. Craig for a moment and, and try to be Tracy Cassie for a moment? Because I think one of the reasons why the police have to be involved is because to change the culture of policing, police listen to other police. And so that's the way you change the culture of policing. So, so we're going to go. We're going to go to the audience. We're going to. We're going to stay for a while, you know, beyond the, the schedule. We'll eat into lunch a little bit, so to speak, because I, I want to be sure that people can engage with you guys. Um, yeah. Um, my name is Terry Smith-Roback. I'm a citizen of this city. And um, I want to say that um, Mr. Clavin was talking about denial at a molecular level, but I think we really have to look at denial at a cellular level. Um, I personally believe, and research has borne out, that um, we are all operating from a, our consciousness is informed by an internalized stereotype. And um, I'm the mom of a brown daughter, and I try to make that explicit to her whenever I can to uncover why she has attitudes about different people of different colors. But that aside, um, I think that... um, Ms. Campbell from Tampa um, has all the right intentions by training her officers on racial bias. But um, 
I just don't think that you can train that out of people unless you are willing to ask them to overcome the shame of their of their racial bias. We're, we're so ashamed to recognize within ourselves that um, we have immediate um, attitudes about people based on their appearance, um, and the first thing we notice is their, um, is their color. And unless we're having um, an explicit dialogue about these kinds of things, we're not going to train it out of people. Um, anecdotally, I was at a dinner party recently with somebody I hadn't seen in a while who is from the north suburbs and just went through the police academy and um, was talking about his first assignment, which was um, on the south side, Inglewood, Lawndale, um, Woodlawn, and the overnight, whatever they call it, shift, which is evidently the least desirable shift. And so the partner that he was with was being punished to this senior guy, was being punished to have to accompany him on this. This is a white guy who's had no real experience with violence of any sort, and um, coming from his own, and, 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 with, and with black people for that matter, coming from the North suburbs. Anyway, he, um, his first exposure to violence of this kind is among the African American community. So he might have experienced that kind of violence walking into a house on the North side, domestic violence, horrible, um, child abuse, drug, uh, you know, drug related, whatever. He may have run into that among white people had that been his first experience, and he would have possibly made that association. Um, but now, he's his internalized racism, which has never been addressed um, because it's so shameful to talk about, um, has now been reinforced by the fact that you're punished by having to go to the South Side in the middle of the night, and you're with a guy who's also being punished for that. You, it, when you're promoted because of good behavior, then you get a nice North Side assignment, right? Mm -hmm. So what does that say to people on, on that level? Um, if you're interested in the issue of internalized bias, internalized racism, and, and starting to recognize it in yourself, um, you can look at Project Implicit, which is a um, has done a great study and, and published online a five-minute test you can ta take to measure your own internalized bias. And I encourage everybody to start talking about this because as well-intentioned as we are, we cannot measure whether we've trained it out of people um, in any line of work. And um, as admirable as it is to develop all these training programs, I don't think they'll be accepted until we allow ourselves to overcome the shame of saying, do I see a black guy walking down the sidewalk in the dark with a hoodie on and have a you know, have the equivalent of my parents' response of locking the doors and the windows when I went through Rock Spring when I was a kid? Yes, I do. And I'm not proud of it, but I do. And unless I'm willing to talk about it, um, and you're willing to talk about it, we are not going to overcome this societal thing, which is as encultured in our society as it is in the police force. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Can I say one thing yeah. about the implicit? Yes. So, uh, I think actually you just made though a case um, about why training, and I don't want to be soft on this because um, this is just, this cannot do it on its own, but why training on implicit bias actually matters mm -hmm. and makes a difference and, there's, and it's been studied and just the, even some of the same things that you were just pointing to. When we are made, when we become aware, I mean so, so much, there, there's, there are different types of racism, but when we're talking about unconscious racism, 
and there's a lot of that. And as Herschel Conyers said yesterday, it's like it's, it would be naive to think that there wouldn't be racism on the police department because where do police come from? They come from us, and, and, and it exists within us. So the research that you just mentioned, which is fantastic, um, about kind of making visible to ourselves our own bias. My friend, um, who I wish could be here but isn't today, and has done so much research on this, Jennifer Everhart, and has done this research actually, with, have done, has done this research in police departments using just that training, the kind of training that you're talking about, and those kinds of tests, and helping officers to see, yeah, and making those admissions, just you said, and it is shameful. It's like, yeah, and this is, this is in, in black folks too. Black folks too will also look will also look at other black folks and have some of the same reactions. It's ingrained. That's how deep racism is in in, in all of us. But becoming aware of that and, and making that visible to ourselves, the research has shown actually that it makes not just a difference in terms of how folks think, but it actually makes a difference in policing and action. So I just I don't want to minimize or say training doesn't matter. It's not a sufficient, not even near sufficient by itself. But it is something that Necessary. I, I think I think training and implicit bias is something that should be going on in every police department. Uh, other questions, comments? of University of Chicago SSA. Um, I happen to um, have a background in police, corrections, and the courts. Um, I worked um, doing research while I was here at University of Chicago with Dr. Rosenheim. Uh, I studied under Dr. Charles Shireman. I also worked at the police department in Aurora for 10 years and was working there while I was doing my studies here at the university. We did very difficult research at that time uh, concerning police uh, activity and their day-to-day uh, uh, -day, uh, conduct. It was done at the Aurora Police Department because of the fact it was impossible at that time to be able to get anything from Chicago Police Department. Um, having been at the police department and, you know, while working here, um, the police is obviously a quasi-military type of organization. They have their own code of ethics, their own culture. Um, when I came into the police department, initially, um, this was after working um, a citywide youth employment program. Um, and kind of backtracking a little bit, I, I have worked with youth pretty extensively in corrections and uh, in other areas of social work. Um, I just basically wanted to say that um, um, it's, it's, it's difficult uh, when you're dealing with a police organization. I lived through the officer friendly. I, I was involved in uh, implementing of that and in uh, designing curriculum materials and so forth. And when you, you see what happened, we have tremendous research from the 60s. This was the aftermath of the 60s when all of the money from um, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration came into uh, communities uh, to train and re-educate and professionalize the police department. And so we've been through that. Um, hopefully, police officers are being uh, 
uh, hired who have a college degree now, that's not maybe the same everywhere because of the fact that policing in a small village is very different than policing in a medium-sized or urban kind of community. Um, what I feel we really need to do, putting police off, more police officers on, the, officers on the street is not going to change the amount of violence. It's not going to make any difference whatsoever. It comes, you have to realize, your police is controlled by your mayor. He is the, he is the boss of the chief of police. This is a political problem as well as being a problem of accountability. And um, you have to figure out how does, how does this, how do we make sense out of this? I see the biggest impact to really change this thing is going to be technology. It's going to be technology. If you can dismantle the Board of Education and teachers and educators, then we can change police officers. If they start losing their jobs, they will do better, you know, but they, you know, you have, it wasn't easy, you know, afterward, they didn't want to be educated, they didn't want to be retrained. You get resistance from this. And it's a culture that's very, very, very difficult. You know, it's, you know, they, you know, they have a difficult job. So I, I, you know, I don't know what else to say, but I guess my, my, my thing is, I think that where the change is really going to have to come is, is through um, uh, technology, maybe uh, putting equipment there and having other ways to um, really um, uh, uh, assess their job, I mean, evaluate them as, as officers. Hello, uh, this is specifically for Professor Cohen and Professor Jones Brown. Um, having graduated from this law school, and there are very few of us of color, and um, seeing in the classroom a lot of implicit bias from people that will be future prosecutors and future judges, can you speak on some of the effective methods that you have utilized in your classroom and specifically with police officers that really address implicit bias in a way that doesn't shame them, but in a way that really wants to resolve the issue and have an honest conversation about it. You do first. Kathy, you I, first. No, you go, because I'm not trying to... Ch no, okay. so one of the things that I try to do in, in the classroom with my sworn officers is to um, help them to recognize the commonality. So I use this, this language of a common humanity. And so there's actually a, um, a scenario that I use that comes from here in Chicago uh, by... Uh, a professor who was at John Jay, but it's a, it's a fishing scenario. And there are three students, well, three young people. It's a white young man. Um, professor Tompkins was himself African-American and Native American, and then there's an Asian young man. And um, the white young man invites the other two to go fishing at a place where he'd been going all of his life. And when he, they get there, um, there's a white gentleman who says that your nigger friend and chink friend can't come in. And he says that to, to, the, to the white child. 
and then there's a decision that has to be made. Does a white child continue to go in and go fishing, or does he go back with his friends? Or do they do something else? Because I asked the, the officers, you know, what would, how would you react? Some of them would have done some things that would amount to a crime. They'd go ahead and sneak in, they'd curse out the guy, they'd beat him up. And these, is, these are all these different things that are coming from police officers, right? And so then the, the asking of them about whether or not, based on their identity, they would have been able to go fishing that day helps them to understand the concept of white, white privilege because there's often pushback um, from folks who are white saying that they don't have privilege. Um, also, um, it, it helps them to understand how it, if a person of color engages in criminality, it's not because they're innately criminal, that sometimes it's a context that pushes them to that kind of behavior. And then there's a part of the exercise where I ask them to be some racial identity other than their, their own. So they, if you're white, you can't say you're the white child and you're gonna talk about how you respond. Um, if you're African-American, you can't say you're the African-American child. And if you're Asian, you can't say you're the Asian child. So to try to get them to put themselves in the position of the other person um, on that scene um, helps some of them recognize the ways in which their own identity is influencing um, their perception of others and their behavior towards others. And that's just one scenario. Then it tends to work pretty well. Um, at the very least, when I ask them to be someone other than they are, they see how uncomfortable they are trying to be that other person, and then we process that some more. I'll just say very quickly, I mean, I don't, I teach here at the University of Chicago. I don't teach a lot of police officers. I wish I did, maybe. Um, but I, I have seen a number of scenarios that work with the implicit bias research. So the first stage is usually to do the, to do the test with folks, right, to, so that they can't say it's not me, because I think there is a way in which the first kind of Maybe it's a denial effort, which is to say, that's horrible, but it's something I would never do. So you, you kind of put people in the place of, oh, my God, I just did that. Mm -hmm. And then I've, I've heard of uh, two other kind of processes. One is um, to almost use some of the more extreme uh, police brutality cases as case studies, to walk a group of officers through the process and have them discuss where were the decision-making points, why was a bad decision made, and to kind of really evaluate that. And then the third thing is then to have an encounter, a face-to-face -face encounter, for example, with some of the young people that you were had here yesterday, to hear from young people what it's like when, in fact, you stop me and you, you, know, you harass me, and you think you're not harassing me, but this is how I, I uh, experience it. So when you put those three together, it can sometimes be more effective. Thank you. I'm hoping that we don't diffuse the issue. We're focused here on black male youth primarily. The children who came in from Hyde Park Academy were black youth, mainly male. My question is, who benefits from having these children feel emasculated, from having them hold their head down, get off the sidewalk when they see the police, feel that they have no power. Who? Who is benefiting from this? And why, are we, why do we have this construct in our society? I take you back to the whole idea of policing. Why do we have police? 
What about the case of the emancipated citizen that I saw out somewhere in Arizona? This farmer had a case where his cows or horses or whatever were eating federal grass. The federal government came in and wanted him to pay for it. Anybody remember that case? He said, no, I'm an emancipated citizen. I'm my own government. I'm not giving you permission to govern me. I won't pay. We've come a long way from that when our citizens feel like the police have all of the power. And I have to say to the uh, gentleman on stage, when they talked about we all have prejudice, yes, white people have prejudice. You're saying black people have prejudice? It doesn't matter. The person who has the power, their prejudice mm -hmm. is what's going to count. Mm -hmm. I can be as prejudiced against you as I want to. But if I have no political power, no say-so, it, it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I want to say. The other thing I want to say is, where is the case where the white youth is being shot by mm -hmm. the police? Why don't we see him on, on uh, you know, they're just not treated like that, and why not? Why don't, so this is a matter of racism because we're not seeing the reverse. And I also want to say that I believe we have these increased police incidents, not just because it's more recorded, but because we have President Obama. Somebody got mad when we elected a black president. And the third thing I want to say is that we can't reform the police until we reform the judiciary. And that means the system of what happens as you go through the court system. We've got to reform that. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Ms. Ms. Mrs. Keyes, I'd like to respond to your first question about who benefits. Um, I manage an African-American newsroom, and we report on race-based disparities uh, every week we publish. Uh, and after doing this for 10 years, it, it, it dawned on me that uh, race-based disparities can mean different things to different people. To African-Americans in the community of conscience, which seems to be pretty much everybody here, it's an outrage because it's pretty obvious to most of us that the human being uh, we spoke about this last night at dinner, is a pretty uh, uniform uh, creature. Uh, given equal opportunities, we're going to achieve equally by race and gender and, and all sorts of other, other, other variables. But for other people, uh, race-based disparity means they're winning. Hello. All right. I uh, just want to thank you guys for talking. And my question is about how do we affect the change that we're talking about here? And my father is a Chicago police officer. 
and I talk to him about these issues a lot, and he tells me that there's a fundamental disconnect between the political leadership of the police and the rank and file. And this is engendered by the politics of nepotism and corruption that we were talking about in the last panel. And so I wonder that even if we do all the political and community organizing and all the activism to vote in people who represent our beliefs, who can appoint leadership who represent our beliefs, but there's a fundamental disconnect between the rank and file and leadership where the rank and file do not respect the leadership. And I wonder if these changes will actually be affected in the rank and file. And I wonder this because my father told me about how with the recent laws that were passed about marijuana making it not an arrest anymore, how there's a new re report that you're supposed to file for these fines that's different than an arrest report. And they've done two hour meetings about how to fill out these files and the officers won't do it because for 15 years they've been, they know how to fill out an arrest report even though it's longer. They know how to do it. This new report they don't know how to do. They don't care to learn it and they continue to file arrest reports for things they shouldn't be doing. So I wonder, we can, we can say we're doing these trainings, we can do all these things, but I just wonder what will it take to actually see what we want to see. Give, give Howard a mic. Yeah, exactly. Come on up. Here, you want mine? Come on up. Come on up. Here you go. Here you go. Howard comes off the bench. I hear 595. Good afternoon again. The, 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 the young man that just spoke, whose father is a police officer, and you talked about nepotism and, and, and a few political influence and whatnot. Remember earlier, you guys have skated all the way around corruption. And corruption has something to do with the economics. Mm -hmm. And then when we start talking about, just historically, from 1970 to now, black kids were being labeled as gang members by police tactical units mm -hmm. that were managing their arrest records at the school level to discourage them from taking the job. Now look, think about this from a family perspective. Most police officers I know right now, when we found out from the Afro-American Patrolman's League, there was an Irish-American Police Association, there was an Italian, there was a Polish, there was a Jewish-American Association, mind you. Then they came up with a union that discarded all of the payroll deduction stuff, and they put a little coterie together that began to say, look, what happens if we start cutting off the intake for black officers, especially males? Because I lost to was very specific. One white male, one black male. Females and others were minorities, not me. I ain't no minority, I'm a black man. It's just that simple. When you mix me with minorities, now I'm in the fight with more women, mm -hmm. more white women specifically, and et cetera. So getting back to how do we control nepotism from the standpoint of a police department? If, if right now, if, if we decided we wanted to measure corruption at the level of a district commander. Why is it that street drug peddling is only in the black community? I mean, think about it now. That means the alderman has to know about it. The district commander has to know about it. Everything, but everybody that goes to prison in a police uniform for drugs, you don't go no higher than the sergeant. Never did. All right, so when does the press who is the only light on the whole subject we're having, begin to be a part of a strategy at the community level to speak on corruption in government that affects police performance and everybody else's performance. So I think the, 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 the kind of 
scenario we're listening for is when does the average honest police officer, white or black, take it upon themselves to say, we're going to rid ourselves because this guy's making me wear a jacket that I don't want to wear. And you say the other professionals do it, the police don't. You know why? Because you can get killed telling on the crooked police. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now, when you start talking about how many ways can the public know about it without you putting me on front street, you keep telling me, black, why don't you tell the police where crime is? We told you that the CAPS program compromised the discussion at the community level because the police wouldn't let people come in there to complain about police misconduct. They only wanted to know where the crime was. And, and, and if you don't understand that, you're not really ready to deal with the issue. When white America, broad white America, says that we are no longer going to be a part of racist treatment of any set in this society, then the community, police who are just a microcosm of the bigger society, they'll feel comfortable doing it. So you can't keep asking the police to commit suicide. When the black officers talked about the ethics, the code of ethics that we all swore to, it became a black and white issue. Now, it was a principle for us. We simply said right is right, man. The code of ethics said we ain't supposed to lock people up unfairly. We're supposed to treat everybody. Okay, so now why you want to put the onus back on me, telling me you go tell me on the white corrupt police? Look at your politicians. You have not asked one time why would a guy in a black district with a black alderman not expose street drugs in there? Because now we found out that nepotism and politics, the, the organization pays to get the little guy reelected again. So he really ain't an elected official. He just got a dog on job. And they call themselves something. And I'm not putting casting aspersions on our elected officials other than to say my job is to keep that segment of my community up in front, talk about them, talk about the corruption, nepotism, etc. But when the white folks gonna do that? When are y'all gonna do that? Because that's the that's the that's the challenge. This university got challenged yesterday. They said, where are the kids that's gonna be law students coming out of here? Well, I don't want to just talk to a bunch of law students to be talking. I want the ones who are gonna be the future of this country to understand fair play and ethics. Simple as that. So if your dad is honest enough to tell you that, yeah, I can't do nothing, he's at least, you know, he's not, he's not a nepotism sponsor, because if he is, he ain't gonna be around very long. We want those honest guys to feel comfortable telling you in the media, look, don't mention my name, just go look at it. You, you with me? Mm -hmm. So once we decide corruption is synonymous with economics, when you tell my youngster that he's not gonna be able to be a police officer yet, your wife, your daughter, your nephew, your niece, because of nepotism, all came through the pipeline because you started me talking about some race stuff. Nepotism is just as powerful. If you don't stop it, it'll corrupt. <laughs> it'll corrupt too. So I, I just want to say that corruption, I have not heard this in very few forms. Get real serious about how systemic is corruption in government and how does that affect police services, no matter who they are? Those guys in special operation units that get busted, and you, you, I'm wondering why don't the feds, the, 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 the U.S. attorney in this northern district of Illinois, when I start asking, why do they change those guys when one starts to prosecute them at the level we're talking about? 
It always changes. But the public outcries, well, why would I tell them I got the job that, you know, some of y'all work for the system because you wouldn't have a damn job if blacks wasn't going to jail. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, just be honest. But the blacks wouldn't either. I mean, I'm saying the guy who's sitting up there, he's getting his paycheck. Where my brother at? So, Where the other policeman at? No, the one from the other city. Was up there with me, Mark. wasn't that? He gone. Oh, Mark. That's his eye. He, he was blowing the whistle. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll answer a specific question. Yeah, no, I think you- but but I'm just saying, don't duck the issue anymore. <laughs> yeah. Ray, I gave you four things. Want me to give them to you again? No, we got them. Okay. Okay. Right. What we're going to do on that rousing note. <laughs> no, no, the, the, one, la- one last thing before I give up this mic. Think about, think about slavery in this context. Because if, if you don't understand it like this, you're not going to really get it straight. The police are the new slave catchers. That's the first thing. That's their job. All right, look, look, well, they knew assignment. They don't call them claims catchers no more. They call them police. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. But now, 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 I'm not saying all police are slave catchers, but now let me take you to the next level. The court system is the new, um, what I would call auctioning, auctioning block. Auction block. We don't have trials anymore, man. Auction block. We're having plea bargaining on cases that were constituted by police. Uh-huh. All right. And then the prison is the, so the police are seasoning our children to be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. They're trying to train our kids to be afraid of the police, even when they haven't done anything. That's a seasoning process. And when you look at the prison system, after I go from my police job, I take them to the court, there's no trial, there's a plea bargaining session, the judge is out of the equation for the most part, politics decided. We don't give the juice to them, we give it to the state's attorney. And now look at the prison system. The prison system trains us how to be obedient and how to be told when to go and when not to go. And they come back with that mindset and recidivism is growing because y'all don't want to interrupt the process. Only because the bill, the economic bill for this now is touching all taxpayers. All taxpayers. Keep being ashamed. Keep telling guys like me to shut up. Because at 70 years old, let me tell you something. You have set yourself up. Even your kids who want to interracially marriage are afraid to do it and live in this country. And if you don't start facing it, folks, you can keep kidding yourself about what the future of America is going to be. I'm saying white folks... Do not think it's just a black problem anymore. Racism made you go to sleep on the victim. Now you're a victim. And I'm telling you, it's not going to be that easy. You can't keep taking a young officer who has had no experience. Let the guy who just contracted at the sergeant level and the lieutenant level to have a union. And they have a clause in there that says, I do not have to work in a dangerous community anymore because I got the seniority, send him. Mm. And he and her, he and she have no training. They're afraid, they're afraid for their lives and they really don't know the name of the game. So now you can sit quietly and keep gathering data <laughs> and don't That's understand what the data means to you as well as to me. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a problem. I'm going to give you these last four things again. <laughs> Force, corruption, nepotism and racism if you're going to have some workshops drill those and see how they impact this audio file is a production of the university of chicago law school 
visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.